is porn just a guy's problem? Not anymore. 30% of porn users are women. And that's what I want to talk about on today's To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum blog, where we like to make marriage less of a to-do list and more of a passionate adventure. But sometimes passion, we get there the wrong way. And we're often told that porn is going to make us feel sexier, that porn is fun and it's adventurous and it'll spice things up. But actually, porn has a really devastating effect on our sex lives. And that's what I want to talk about. It isn't just a guy's issue. Did you know that the fastest growing group of porn users right now are teenage girls? Like in percentage terms, not in raw numbers, okay, because other groups have way more raw numbers. But if you look at which group is growing the fastest, it's teen girls. We need to get ahead of this problem and we need to start addressing the fact that women use porn too. And not just pornography. Women read an awful lot of erotica. There's a reason that Fifty Shades of Grey became such a large scale phenomenon. And it really does impact our ability to respond sexually with our husbands and to be really intimate. So let's look at this. Last week on the blog, I ran a great guest post by Beth Nyhart on how she escaped a porn addiction. And the comments on that were really interesting, along with a lot of the emails I received. So I just thought this was a good thing to explore a little bit more. So let's start with how porn starts, which is often in those teenage years, you're just starting to get sexual feelings, sexual curiosity at that age is natural. And then maybe you see porn, you hear about porn, or someone shows you porn. The average age of first exposure to pornography today is around 11 or 12. So think about how young that is. That's a girl who is just starting maybe to get her period. She's just reaching puberty. All these changes are happening to her. And then suddenly she sees this image. The reaction that most of our bodies have to something like that is biological. Okay, a lot of people, and it's quite natural to get aroused by stuff like that, even stuff you don't like, and this is this is something that's so important to talk to teenagers about, is that just because they get aroused by it, that doesn't mean that they're sick or that they're perverts or anything like that. Biologically, we can get aroused by something we don't like. But that arousal kicks in. Often it's accompanied by masturbation. And so you get a sexual response cycle that is now being paired with pornography, um, with those images, with those thoughts. And so your body starts to crave it. Your body starts to really enjoy it because you get these great feelings from it. Now, we can debate whether porn use is actually an addiction or whether it's just a habit, and I'm not sure the distinction is is that important. But the point is, the more that someone uses porn in those teenage years and in your young adult years, the more you train your body to respond only to those images and not to relationship. In fact, you're specifically training your body that relationship isn't sexy, Because what porn does is it depersonalizes everything, okay? It's not about who you're with. It's about certain scenarios. It's about what you're doing. And that means that you've reduced sex to something which is really only physical and isn't emotional or spiritually intimate, any of those things whatsoever, When we look at teenage porn users too, they're more likely to put up with violence in relationships. They think actually that violence is normal. They're more likely to think that sex should be rough. They're more likely to think that certain acts are part of a normal, healthy sexual relationship when they really are very degrading. 
And so this cycle of porn use can completely devastate a young girl's and a young woman's sense of her own sexuality. But porn doesn't only start that way. It's, it's not only because you may have been exposed to porn. There's another route that women often go through that gets them into porn. And it looks more like this. You have a teenage girl. She might be a little bit shy. Uh, she has a lot of time on her hands. She's 11, 12, 13. She doesn't have a part-time job yet. So she goes to the church library and she gets out all of these romance novels. Because by that time, she's sick of reading children's books. She wants to graduate to more adult books. And what can be safer than Christian books from your church library? And so you devour all of these Christian romance novels and soon she's read them all. But she wants to keep reading romances. So she moves on from Amish romances to Harlequins. And then it's not much of a stretch from the Harlequins to things like Nora Roberts, which, you know, the very romantic, but also very sexually explicit. And soon you start really enjoying those sexually explicit scenes. And it's really easy to now jump to full-fledged erotica, like the Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, most readers of erotica will tell you that they started with romance novels. And this is why, if you are a mom of teenage girls, please hear me on this. It is really important to get them reading stuff that isn't just romances. Get them into Agatha Christie. Okay, I know that's murder, but Agatha Christie's books are great. And they're not as dark as you would think that they should be. <laughs> um, P.D. James, also really good. Or get into the classics like Jane Austen, uh, any of those. There are wonderful books out there. Find book lists, just Google it, you know, good, great women's literature, um, look specifically for literature. And there are some wonderful Christian books out there too. encourage your daughter to make her reading count. You know, reading is an interesting thing because reading can really grow virtue. It shows us what life can be like, and it shows us what life shouldn't be like. And it allows us to explore different moral dilemmas, different concepts, different ideas, different ambitions without actually having to do it. It's, it's like when you read a book, you enter into the story. And and that's something that Marshall McLuhan, who was this Canadian sociologist, he, I think he's coined this term in the 1960s, but he said, the medium is the message. What he meant by that is that the way that we learn a message, the, the medium by which it's conveyed to us actually changes the message. So when we watch news on television, for instance, what you're really getting is sound bites. And those sound bites change the way you process the, the message and the, the fact that it has to be in sound bites changes what is shown. The medium of books does an interesting thing too, because the thing about a book versus a television is that a book is actually an active medium. And by that, I mean, when you are reading it, we actually have to picture what is going on. Our imagination has to kick in. And so we tend to place ourselves in the action. We see it all as happening to us. This is why fiction can actually be a very powerful tool to teach kids about virtue, um, about godly characteristics, about to how to have a biblical worldview because you can see how the world really looks. But it's also why erotica can be so dangerous. Because the words that we read, as we read them, we're picturing ourselves in that scenario. And we've owned that scenario in a much deeper way. So now let's take these teenage girls. You know, maybe they got into porn because it was because they were exposed to it. Maybe they started reading erotica. Maybe they've got some of both, whatever it may be. But let's fast forward them 10 or 15 years. So now they're married. And maybe they're trying not to watch porn anymore. 
Um, maybe they're, they're really trying to have a great marriage, but they're struggling because those images are still there. Here's a letter that I got from a woman, for instance. She says, Hi, Sheila. I am so embarrassed about a problem that I have. I started reading erotica when I was a teenager. I'm now married to a wonderful man who's actually a great lover, but my body doesn't respond to him at all. But if I imagine things in my head that I read, then I can get turned on. And I find that I can't climax without playing a scene out in my head, even if it's a scene I would never, ever, ever, ever want to do in real life. How do I stop this and just enjoy sex with my husband? This is what's different between women's porn use and men's porn use that we may not always understand. When men use porn, you see, it does rewire their brain so that what becomes arousing is an image or a video rather than a relationship or a person. The effect of this on men is that it often makes it very difficult for them to perform sexually when they're with their wives. So you get increased rates of erectile dysfunction, increased rates of premature ejaculation or delayed ejaculation, all of those things come to play. With the women, however, our sex drives are far more in our heads than men's are. And so that means that many of us can get ourselves aroused just through thinking. And studies even show that some women can actually reach orgasm solely through fantasy. So just like this letter writer said, you'll be with your husband, but in order to get aroused, you have to pull up those images or scenarios in your mind. And that's actually what makes you sexually responsive. This is really common. I talked about this in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex quite a bit. Um, a lot of women write in to me about this. So if you've been experiencing this, please know that you're not alone. There's even a word for it, and it's called dissociation. It's when you might be with your husband, but your mind is somewhere else. Um, it actually is a defense mechanism that a lot of sexual abuse survivors have used. Something's happening to them, and so they almost separate from their bodies and they go somewhere else. So it's a defense mechanism. But we can also prime ourselves to dissociate by watching porn, by reading erotica. And this is wrong. Like if you've been doing this, it needs to stop. You might actually be enjoying sex, but you're not really enjoying making love at all. All you're doing is you're using your husband as a sex toy while you're fantasizing. That's not a proper sex life in marriage. And that does need to stop. I actually think women can hide porn use way easier than men can just because of the way that our bodies respond. When a man's been using porn a lot, it shows up in the marriage bed. When a woman's been using porn a lot, it doesn't. It can just make her seem really sexually responsive. So you've got to deal with this. First, you're going to need some accountability. You need to stop. Talk to a friend. Find someone that you can confess to and just say that you've been battling with this and you don't want to anymore. For a lot of people, the porn use and the erotica might be in the past. They may not be using it anymore, but the fantasies are still there. But for others, the porn use and the erotica is still a big part of your life. And if that's true, you need to stop and you need to confess. Get covenant eyes on your computer so that you can't access erotica anymore. Um, make sure that your Kindle is shared with other people so that they will see what's in your Kindle library so that you can't download anything like that anymore. And yes, tell your husband, even if that's a really difficult conversation, because he needs to know. Now, what do you do about the bedroom? What do you do with sex itself? Well, I'm going to give you six steps. One, emphasize foreplay. When sex has been primarily about fantasy, then foreplay becomes kind of a distraction. Because when you're touching each other, and when you're being active by touching each other, then you can't concentrate on your fantasy. In fact, 
most people who dissociate will find that they almost need to become very passive in bed in order for this to work because they have to have no distractions so their mind can go where they need their mind to go. So people who have done this, they may rush through foreplay because it's actually hindering the fantasy. So if you're going to learn how to be present during sex and how to make sex be about feeling physically good and not just about fantasy, you're going to need foreplay. You need to see that your body can get aroused without the fantasy, just with his touch and concentrating on your husband. Um, so this, this is going to require having that difficult conversation with your husband. You're going to have to tell him what's going on. And I know that that's a hard thing to talk about. And I know that it could hurt him. But just say, you know, this is something that I got caught up in as a teen. I don't want to do this anymore. I want sex to be totally about us. So can we slow down? And can we help me? Because I want to love you. And I want sex to be about us. And then spend a lot of time on foreplay. Even set the timer and don't let yourself start intercourse for a certain period of time. Like drag it out and see the physical effects that it has on you. As you learn what your body likes and as you get used to your body responding, you will find it easier to stay mentally present during intercourse. Number two, be the aggressor when you're making love. When you're the one in control, when you're the one setting the pace, it's actually a lot harder to fantasize and it's also easier to focus on what your body is feeling. So don't just let foreplay be something that he does to you. Like use your husband, you know, climb on top of him and make love with you on top so that you can figure out what the angle is right. Um, Move around as much as you want. When you're involved in foreplay, like rub against him. I don't know, use your imagination. (laughs) But, But just make sure that you're the one moving around. Three, if you find yourself in the middle of making love going to fantasy, commit to stopping and bringing your mind back to your body. Even if it means you have to tell your husband what's going on, commit to saying, no, it's taking a hold of me again and I want to stop and I just need a minute to collect my thoughts. Uh, Number four, don't focus on orgasm, focus on pleasure. Okay, this is going to sound weird, but if you do find yourself fantasizing, stop And then just focus on pleasure. Ask yourself, okay, what is my body feeling right now? Um, What wants to be touched right now? You need to get carried away by pleasure and not the fantasy. So stop the fantasy and think about what your body is feeling. Because if you've been involved in fantasy erotica porn for a long time, your body may be capable of reaching orgasm, but until now it really hasn't. It's that your mind has done it for you. But you can learn how to reach orgasm through physical stimulation rather than just mental gymnastics. You have to put your brains to work for you in a different way. Instead of your brain fantasizing, you need to deliberately concentrate on what you're feeling physically. So stop ignoring your body and start actually paying attention to what feels good. Concentrate on how things are feeling. Make sex super personal. It's awfully hard to fantasize about something else if you're saying your husband's name. Okay, so say his name out loud, look at his face, explore his body. Make sex be about your husband and not your fantasies. And then, and I think this is really the most important one, which needs to frame everything, which is ask God to redeem your sex life. Do you have any idea how much God wants you to have an intimate and deeply personal and deeply wonderful sex life? Seriously, this is his will for you. He wants this for you, but he doesn't just automatically give it to you. You have to choose to repent of erotica, of pornography, of fantasy. You have to choose to let those fantasies go and you need to take every thought captive, like it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5.
That's the key to this whole thing. But God wants to help you with this. He wants to transform you from the inside out, including through renewing your mind. So ask him about it. It's okay to pray about this stuff. You don't need to be ashamed. Ask him to help you have the kind of super intimate marriage that you really do want. So if you need that sexual reset, if you need to have some difficult conversations with your husband and start this all over again, 31 Days to Great Sex is a great way to do this. Um, you can get that on my website. It's, it's either on Amazon. You can get a really cheap version um, through Kindle or through the PDF uh, from my website. And just remember, if you are battling with fantasy, with erotica or porn, you're not the only woman who does this. A lot of women do. But just like men, we can't get over this until we repent, until we get accountability, and until we make the decision that this is no longer going to be part of our marriage. We think of porn as a guy's problem, but increasingly, girls are getting hooked on porn too. Think of porn's effect on teenage girls if porn becomes their sex ed. It's not just sons we have to protect, it's daughters too. If you have children at home, you need covenant eyes on your computers, devices, and phones. Learn more at CovenantEyes.com and use the coupon code TLHV to get your first month for free. And it's time for our Millennial Marriage segment with me and my millennial daughter, Rebecca. Hello. (laughs) And Becca, we have a great question from a parent today that I'm hoping that you can help with. So why don't you read it for us? All right. So the question is this. My eldest is 19 years old and away at university. We are a Christ-loving and very happy family. Our children were homeschooled, and we are quite laid back compared to most families that we know. Well, anyway, my daughter is becoming very interested in a young man at school. He is kind and open-hearted, but he does not yet know Jesus as his Savior. He comes from a broken home and has lived a much different life than our daughter. Should we intervene before they become too involved, or should we trust God and our daughter to handle the relationship? All right, so I think I'm going to hand this one mostly over to you. I have some definite thoughts, but I know you wrote the book, Why I Didn't Rebel. You know all about how parents can influence kids and how that goes wrong. So what, what's your initial reaction to this question? Well, my initial reaction is that parents are allowed to be concerned about their kids' relationships. I think parents are often told, like, you just need to back off and just it's their life and you need to kind of suck it up and go and sit in the corner and just hope they make the right decision. And I don't think that's true. Like, yes, it's your daughter's life, but your daughter's also your daughter. Mm-hmm. Like that severely impacts you as well. It's like you have this person who's so important to you and you're worried you're making the bad decision. And so of course this is going to impact you. So I do want to first of all say that like parents, your fears and your love and your concern, it doesn't need to be ignored. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, because I think parents are often given a bit of a hard time about that. But I do also think that parents often go about the whole conversation of, is he a great guy to date in a very unhelpful way? Okay, so what would be unhelpful? A lot of times when parents are scared for their kids, that they're making a bad decision, their response is initially to try to control the situation and kind of put an end to it on their own terms. Right? Mm-hmm. You want to say, you cannot see this guy. You know, I'm still paying for you, your university, and so while I'm still paying your way, you can't do this. Or they do those kinds of threats a lot of times. I've seen it a lot with kids that I went to school with. Yeah, I remember, I remember one parent I knew of, a 20-year-old, who even took away her cell phone, even though she had paid for it. 
Yeah, which is just not necessarily helpful because the reality is, you know, your daughter's 19 and she's exploring freedom for the first time. And I came from also one of those quite laid back homeschooling families, but you do still want to kind of be like, oh, I'm doing something that's quote unquote normal for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. Right? There is something of that as well. I'm not saying that's what's happening with this particular daughter, but just in general, you know, kids mm-hmm. do often explore their freedom in different ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's not always good to try to take away that freedom. I think that's the issue is that as a parent, the way that I always saw it is I can still influence you. There's nothing wrong with mm-hmm. influencing. I mean, like you said, I love you. You're my kid. Obviously, I have opinions. But there's a big difference between influence and intervening, which is what the word that she used. And I don't think that you can really intervene once your child is 19. Exactly. And that's the thing. They're giving this kind of a false dichotomy in the situation. They ask, should we intervene before they become too involved? Or should we trust God and our daughter handle the relationship? It's either we intervene or we stand back entirely in the name of trust. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, you can trust God and still use your influence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can trust God with your daughter daughter's life and still say well I'm not going to stand back as a like helpless bystander and watch my daughter make a bad mistake Mm -hmm. that's not not trusting God but not taking control of the situation not trying to wrestle that control from your kid that's trusting your kid and trusting God right I I, I know a lot of my friends have gone through this in fact I'm not even sure this is a millennial marriage question it's talking about young people which makes it millennial but they're not married yet so maybe (laughs) but there's a lot of parents out there I'm sure who have like a 28 year old daughter who is dating someone who they aren't thrilled about or something like that right but I'll tell you I do have a lot of friends who have gone through this situation where they don't like the person that that their child is dating or they have some honest to goodness concerns and the the best thing that I think parents can do is to invite that significant other into your family life as much as possible. Like don't, Mm -hmm. don't, the worst thing you can do is to keep them out because when you keep them out, you're encouraging your daughter to live an entirely separate life from you in the things that matter Mm -hmm. most to her. When you bring that significant other in, when you have them over for, for Easter dinner and for Christmas and Thanksgiving, and when you invite them on summer vacations, then that, person is going to be in your family at the same time as your daughter is in your family and your daughter will start to notice if that person doesn't fit well and about holidays too i mean even just the simple thing of like well our family tends to go to you know church on christmas eve and so if he's there and he doesn't really want to participate or it isn't really meaning anything to him that also may be kind of the bit of a wake-up call to your daughter where actually i do want someone who shares my faith i want someone who doesn't just tolerate the fact that i am a christian but who can really delve into this with me. Whereas when you're at university, it can be very easy to kind of keep those two things separate. Whereas with family at big events like Easter or like Good Friday or something, that can really bring that to the forefront. Yeah, because I think when you're at university, you think that you're acting like yourself. You think that you're, um, you know, this is who I am, but you're not really because it is a different environment. And when you come back home and when you're surrounded by your family and your friends that you've had your whole life, then it becomes more obvious when the person doesn't fit. But they also feel that they don't fit. And so if the relationship is not going to be a good one in the long term, I think it's actually far more likely to break down if you have that person in your life. And I also do want to say one thing, though. This family seems concerned about two things. First of all, they're concerned that he's not a Christian. And I would say that if your daughter is a Christian and if you believe in God as your like number one, as we all should if we are Christians, then yeah, that's a really big deal because you don't want to be married to someone who doesn't share the most important part of your life. But they also make a really big deal over the fact that he comes from a broken home. Mm-hmm. And that is so not fair. Mm-hmm. I do want to say that. That is not 
fair. You know, you can't control where you come from. Mm -hmm. You can only control who you are. And they say he's kind and he's open-hearted. If you come from a broken home Mm -hmm. and you are a person of good character, your broken home should not be held against you. And I see this a lot with families. Like, well, he doesn't come from the same situation as us. And so is he good? Well, maybe. Mm -hmm. And if you focus a lot on the broken home, I mean, for Pete's sake, your 19-year-old daughter probably wants to help repair him and fix him and make him feel better. If you keep on bringing up the broken home, that's just going to make her think that you're just heartless. And and speaking as someone who came from a broken home, (laughs) you know, and still has a really good marriage, and I think I did a fairly decent job of parenting too. I mean, it doesn't mean that um, you know, people, people from broken homes actually often do what I did, which is say, I don't want to um, replicate this pattern. And so I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that it doesn't happen to me. Um, exactly. I have one group of couple friends where one person is, comes from a typical kind of what you would consider a solid family. And the other one comes from a broken home. And the one who came from a broken home actually like has coffee with his father-in-law and talks about like, you know, what did you do to make this work? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and he, he's managed to be a mentor for him. Whereas if you kind of put yourself as, oh, well, his parents are divorced. And so can you really, you know, we're just worried about where he's been or something. It's, it's, it's just not a good Christian perspective to use someone's past against them. It's really not. If they, if they showed they're using good character. Now, if your daughter's dating a former drug dealer who's still dealing drugs, that is very, very different. (laughs) But just someone coming from a broken home but being a person of good character, I think that is very unhelpful to use that as a weapon against the relationship. Right. One more more final thought. Um, I also have some friends who their kids were dating non-Christians, and those relationships did eventually end. But in the interim, my friends really um, embraced those non-Christians, and they became great mentors to those kids. And those teens and those young adults. And so even though the relationship fell apart, they did have a very positive effect on those kids and on the way that they saw faith. So, you know, relationships may not work. And if she's only 19, this may just be her first relationship and it may not turn out. But I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what can I do in the here and now to show Jesus to all those around me and to help my daughter make good decisions? Exactly. And that may mean embracing this guy because your daughter loves him. So embrace him, love him, and trust that you did enough as you were raising your daughter to help her make good decisions. Exactly. And you can have those conversations with your daughter where, you know, I'm worried that you are with someone who doesn't share your faith. And that makes me worry that someday you won't care about your faith either, because if it isn't important in dating, that does make me scared. Mm -hmm. You can say those kinds of things. That is fair. But the thing is too, you know, maybe this person is in your daughter's life because you're supposed to minister to him. You never know. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And so don't, don't automatically shut everything out. Exactly. Are you part of the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum community? Sign up for my emails and you'll get weekly Friday updates with behind-the-scenes pictures and info, exclusive video content, stuff I'm wrestling with, and more. You'll also get access to our free resource library with over 25 marriage and parenting freebies, my free five-day sex pep talk, and more. Sign up on the homepage at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. 
And every week I like to answer a reader question that's come in. And I've actually asked Rebecca to stay on with me for this one because this is what I need her help with. So I'm going to read it this time. A woman writes, I have a sister who is gorgeous. She works as a waitress. She is constantly hit on by men of all ages, even in front of these men's wives. Ew, that's like just so icky. But anyway, she has been sexually harassed and assaulted. She can't even go to Walmart in everyday attire without men staring at her like she's a dog. This and several other things led her to suicidal thoughts, panic attacks, and all around fear of men. As her older sister, I can't begin to tell you how angry this makes me. She is a believer. However, our dysfunctional family has left her with a rocky faith. She is in a bad relationship with a narcissistic guy, but he is the only man she feels slightly safe with. My question is this. How does a young Christian girl who struggles with her faith, insecurity, identity, and appearance deal with such an immense burden of constant lust from unbelieving men? Is there anything I can do as her sister to help? Wow. I know. Isn't that sad? Okay. I do want to, I do want to comment first on this narcissistic thing because this is very, very common. Okay. When you grow up in a dysfunctional family, so you already feel like you don't have a lot of you know, security in yourself or whatever. And then um, a guy comes along who wants to control you. That can actually seem really safe at first. <laughs> well, and who also is so confident in himself because yes. narcissists come off as very much like I know what to do. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, no, he's not the nicest guy, but at least it's under his control. At least someone is taking control of the situation. Right. And so that is very common for people in these types of situations to hook up or to get with a guy that's completely wrong for them and is actually mm-hmm. going to make the problem worse. So I really do feel for the sister here. Um, I do uh, a couple of things we could comment on, but but let's take this point about how she has guys looking at her all the time. First of all, she really does need to understand her worth in Christ, you know, because it sounds like she is so insecure that, and I have to say this in a way that I'm not blaming the victim because I truly, this Mm -hmm. is not my intention. But sometimes when we are very insecure, what we're looking for is for other people to tell us that we're important. So we become people pleasers. And that means that when we go through our daily interactions, we give off this vibe that we are very friendly and we care what other people think of us. Exactly. And that can make us a target. Now, again, I'm not trying to blame the victim. I'm just trying to explain the dynamic (laughs) that often happens because you'll notice like some women just get picked on a lot more than others. Exactly. And it seems like there's nothing different about them and the other really attractive person on the bus, but they're the ones that all the creeps are looking at. Yeah. And so again, you know what? Nobody deserves to have creeps creeping on you. They totally don't. No. And if creep is creeping on you, it is the creep's fault and the creep's responsibility. Uh, But there also are things that we can do to make it less likely so that the creeps will creep on us in the first place. Ideally, we'll get to a place in our culture where the creeps are no longer doing the creeping. Yes, absolutely. No, like we all agree with that. Yes. But until then, it also, there are some things you can do to kind of, you know, make it so that they are no longer getting the reward that they want from creeping on you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that might be the most I've ever said creeping. <laughs> so how can we get to the point where we aren't such a target? And again, you know what? Sometimes there's absolutely nothing you can do. But there, but I know when I was a teenager, I was taught, I, I lived uh-huh. in downtown Toronto. I was often walking alone at night and I was taught certain things to do that just made me look like you better not mess with me. Honestly, you just kind of want to look a little bit tough. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and uh, you know, when you're on a subway, if someone stares you down, you stare at them and you give them the most ugly expression, which maybe that doesn't sound very Christ-like, but 
<laughs> but the reality is some people are going to try to cross your boundaries and that is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And it you don't need to cater to the whim of every person around you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're getting at with this idea of like know your value and your worth and live by that. Yeah. And if it doesn't feel real, then tell yourself. I've told this to a lot of my friends who have insecurity issues. It's like remind yourself, I am a precious daughter of Christ and you do not have the right to treat me that way. Ooh, this reminds me of a post I wrote a while ago um, on women. It's okay to be rude to creepy people. So I, in the Mm -hmm. podcast extras for this, I will put a link to that because it's got a lot of ideas on how to handle these, these really creepy interactions in public, which yeah, yeah, are important. Um, So yeah, like if you're a waitress and, and guys hit on you, I would just, you know, that's difficult because it's your job, but I think turning to him and saying, I'm really sorry you're saying that in front of your wife and acknowledging the wife's presence, I think is perfectly acceptable. Yeah. I actually worked at a restaurant once where, um, there was a patron who came in and was kind of sexually harassing one of the really attractive female waitresses. And so she just literally went to like the middle-aged dude server and said, hey, you're taking this table. I'll take yours. And they just switched mm-hmm. halfway through the meal. And then this dude shows up. And the husband who was hitting on this waitress was like, who are you? He's like, I'm your new server. <laughs> and like sometimes if you're in a work situation, you can't actually do those kinds of things. Yeah, it's okay to stand up for yourself. It honestly is. It really is. I would also say getting out of waitressing is probably a good career move for this woman just lifestyle move but i understand that waitressing often pays better when you're not highly skilled at other things Mm -hmm. so that's a difficult thing um one other thought is i think this woman needs to be introduced to a community where there's good guys yeah that's so important and there are good guys i know when you come from a dysfunctional family it could be that your church family was also really messed up um, and so that may not be a super safe place for you but find a church where they value women and go and and bring invite your sister to come with you um tell her that she doesn't need to be treated this way and tell her that not all men are like this and when men are like that they're actually acting in opposition to god like that's not the way god sees her exactly and that's not the way that god made men that's just men giving into their really gross desires that they want to do. Yeah, so we just need to get real about this and um, and get in a church which values women. And if you're at a church where the men are not treating you well, that is a problem. Mm-hmm. And don't see that as a, well, all guys are like that, because they aren't. You can go somewhere where you can feel safe, And where you can have men of all different generations who just want to really feed into your life and be in community with you. I know I have that. I mean, Connor and I have some good friends at church who are a retired couple. We have a couple friends who are retired couples at our church, you know, and a couple who are, you know, younger than us and a couple who are, you know, in that like middle-aged with kids. Like that's what you want because that gives you a good cross-section of what good people look like. Mm Mm-hmm. So that you can kind of start to heal from this idea that all men ever see me as is a piece of meat. Because 
they shouldn't, and all men will not. Right. So you just need to find good ones. So when you're at church, you know, make sure you're at a church where the men don't talk down to the women. Like it needs to be at a church where men and women can have good conversations about theology, about God, all of that stuff. It, you know, where it's not like the men are over here and the women are in the kitchen. It needs to be something where the men and women are together so that you can have like couple friends. But I would say as her sister, the big thing you can do is just keep telling her her worth in Christ teach her some some basic self-defense things and i don't mean self-defense as in when someone attacks you but but self-protection like appearing confident when you're in public you know going over like why is it that you feel like you have to be nice to people who are creepy to you (laughs) You having those conversations yeah exactly and teaching her how to stop conversations before they get to an inappropriate way and if you're with her when something bad happens i mean do what should be done give the guy the death glare (laughs) absolutely and then i would say try to involve her in your social circle as much as possible so you need to have a good social circle have a good church yourself and then have couple friends over over and invite her to those interactions. Let her meet some quality people because I think the more that we can get in a healthy community, that the more that we're healed. And that really is what the body of Christ is supposed to be for, is to model to us what a healthy community looks like and how God sees us. So invite her into that as much as possible. Every week, I kind of like to turn this podcast over to you, my listeners and my readers, because there's a lot of wisdom on that side of the microphone. And this week, I have another awesome comment from Kay that she left on the blog. She was talking about how sometimes stuff that our husbands do bothers us, but instead of bringing it up, we keep it in. And in the end, that actually doesn't build oneness. That causes us to drift a lot further apart. So she was commenting on one of my stories about having to pick up dirty socks. And she said this. I think we need to talk to women differently about expressing your needs. I've heard over and over again this story of a wife who was infuriated after tripping over her husband's muddy boots every day, but then he was suddenly killed and she'd give anything to trip over those boots again, with the takeaway lesson being that instead of nagging, you should cheerfully move those boots yourself and rejoice that you have a husband at all. I am sorry, but I cannot ignore the socks and shoes and boots without letting bitterness and resentment get to me. I just can't. It has been far healthier for me to kindly ask, even if it's a million times, hey, babe, would you move your boots or pick up your socks? Not a big deal. But staying quiet about it for years hurt my marriage. But this is how we are training women to just shut up and take it. If it's bothering you, pretend he's dead and it won't bother you anymore. Ta-da! Um, what? It's like in love and respect with the wet towels for me. There, Kay is referring to a post that I wrote about the book Love and Respect, where the husband left wet towels on the bed and the wife was just supposed to take it. It's a respect thing. It is disrespectful to me to have to trip over his socks and shoes in the hallway. It may not be a big deal to others, and they might be able to pick them up no problem, but I'm not that girl. This is a respect issue for me, and I choose to tell him I need him to move his shoes. I am kind but firm, and we are all happier for it. But we need to teach women it is okay to speak up, because I have been feeling like a bad, nagging wife every time I see that boot story pop up on the internet. But asking women to pretend their husband is dead to let what feels like disrespect slide? I find this exceptionally messed up. If resentment is building, it's okay to ask for what you need to avoid that resentment. Really. And I just want to echo what Kay is saying. We're not talking about being disrespectful to your husband. We're just talking about saying, you know, hon, this really matters to me. And I'd really appreciate it if it mattered to you too. You have needs. It's okay to have needs. And if you bottle that up, 
it's just going to end up blowing up your marriage. So thanks, Kane. And thanks to everyone who leaves awesome comments. I really do appreciate people who interact, especially on the blog, so that other people can see them when they read the posts much later. I think it just adds so much to the discussion. So hey, if you're thinking about something, leave a comment too. Thanks for joining us for the To Love, Honor, and Vacuum podcast, where we talk about the real practical stuff of marriage. Remember to check out the blog at tolovehonorandvacuum.com. And if you like this podcast, subscribe to it, rate it, and tell others about it. And now I wish you all a blessed Easter with your family. May we all reflect on the tremendous gift of having new life in Christ and how the resurrection of Jesus means that we don't have to fight things like porn or insecurity or anything on our own. He is living with us and in us, and he is fighting for us. Happy Easter. Thank you.